Hi Jason, welcome to the Great Writers Project. Thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, you're going to uh, uh, give us a bit of information for the, the post-colonial section of the, of the website uh, and you're going to talk about a perhaps now canonical post-colonial figure, M. Césaire. So I was wondering if you could perhaps just give us a sort of general introduction to, to Césaire to start, to kick off with. Okay. Aimé Césaire was born in 1913, so 99 years ago, in the island of Martinique in the Eastern Caribbean, mm -hmm. in the French West Indies. Uh, he had a career that was both literary and political. He represented Martinique in the French Parliament and uh, was for almost half a century mayor of his hometown, uh, Fort de France. Uh, but what brought Césaire to the notice of the world was a poem published in book form in 1947 after an earlier partial publication in 1939. And that poem was called, or is called, uh, Le Cahier d'un Retour au Pays Natal, which translates to, and has been published in English as Notebook of a return to my native land. It's uh, still a very famous, an extremely famous work. Uh, it, ca it came with a ringing endorsement of André Breton, the leader of the Surrealist movement, because Césaire, without knowing it, was writing essentially Surrealist. Surrealism mm. was writing in a Surrealist mode. And uh, André Breton, in this famous quote, praised uh, the voice of Aimé Césaire, whom, which he described as belle comme l'oxygène naissant, which means beautiful as like nascent oxygen. Um, so it's a very compelling demonstration of surrealism in poetry. Uh, in the Cahier, Césaire uh, describes and articulates his concept of negritude. He had studied in Paris with another poet, Léopold Sédar Senghor, who was later to become the first president of Senegal. And together they created and defined this concept of negritude, which proclaims and reclaims the full cultural heritage of black people throughout the world. And so the poem articulates the various strands of negritude in terms of skin color, of course, mm -hmm. uh, relationship to the natural and cosmic order in terms of history, in terms of racial identity, um, in terms of the foundational experience of, of suffering of the black people. And uh, very importantly, um, a, a prise de conscience, as they say in French, um, a political awakening mm -hmm. of the black race, which was very much in in the the, the zeitgeist, the the, the the spirit of that that, that time. Césaire was in Paris um, he, and moved amongst many of the intellectuals from the Harlem Renaissance who had uh, immigrated. Um, to France, including Claude McKay, um, Josephine Baker, and so on. Yeah. And so 
Um, but the, the, the poem itself and Césaire's work is far more than a work of political awakening and militancy, though it's certainly that. But it, 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 it also it did spark many movements of cultural uh, awakening and militancy throughout the world in Africa uh, and, and in North America. But it is his work, as Edouard Glissant, a famous Caribbean intellectual, described it, une, une profonde poétique de la souffrance, a, a deep poetics of, of suffering. Mm -hmm. It is the cahier, uh, in particular, uh, combines intense anger with intense lyricism. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's a very long poem. It's written in free verse and in its original uh, form, its original publication was over 60 pages long and it remains a seminal work for, for poetry and for Caribbean literature in general. Mm -hmm. It leaps off the page. It, a lot of readers are disconcerted uh, upon mm -hmm. approaching the cahier. It's a very difficult, a very recondite sort of language. And, you know, written in the surrealist mode, it's not always the easiest yeah. to sort of decipher, but one needs to be transported by the music of the poetry, by the intense, the intensity, like I said, of the poetry, which, which it, it explodes. It's like a volcano. It is really a, a, a watershed moment mm -hmm. for Caribbean writing. Amy Césaire has a very peculiar... It makes peculiar usage of, of language in his way, the way he combines words, the way he breaks uh, lexical and semantic uh, conventions, mm -hmm. uh, the way he makes unusual correspondences between words. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, there's the language of revolt, there is the language of the Martinican uh, landscape, uh, because the poet and the persona, he, he is often found in different places, but at some instances he is looking at his country, a very desolate country, a very, um, what shall I say, a very sad and, and gloomy place where the anger, the resentment of the people are bottled up. Mm -hmm. And he contemplates his helpless people and he sees himself as a sort of savior um, who is called who is invested with a mission to um, deliver his people and to elevate them to the level of uh, to a level of dignity that they had not known before as i said he articulates the relationship between his people and not just his people with all black people, because as I've said, it's a poem that celebrates the cultural heritage and, and the civilization mm -hmm. of blacks yeah. all over the world. And he uh, articulates the relationship between blacks and the cosmic order, uh, basically to show that blacks did not emerge from one long night of, of backwardness. Yeah. That they have an ancient civilization, une civilisation millénaire, as mm -hmm. he said, 
and and that's worthy of being celebrated of being foregrounded and yeah. so on it's it's a work that le grand cri nègre as as Césaire has said himself the great negro cry that yeah. is what the cahier is Césaire has written over 14 collections of poetry um, since and he essentially wrote poetry up until the 60s only poetry up until the 60s when he ventured into the theater and his first work is called Elishien Soutézé which is really a, a reworking of a previous surrealist poem it brings together a whole host of uh, traditions from Aeschylus to uh, Paul Claudel in the, in the 20th century. There's lots of literary, uh, literary allusion. There's lots of uh, myth from ancient Greek myth to Egyptian mythology. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, very interesting to look at from that point of view. And he's combining those ancient traditions with the homegrown Caribbean mm-hmm. sort of traditions. But his first internationally renowned work was La Tragédie du Roi Christophe, The Tragedy of King Christophe, based on real historical events. Henri Christophe had himself proclaimed Henri I, King of Haiti, and ruled a kingdom which he created in the north of Haiti. Haiti which won its freedom, its independence from France in 1804, at the end of what was and is the only successful slave uprising in history, in the history of European colonization. And Henri reigned in the north of Haiti until 1820, so for nine years. Césaire's play is based on this period and this personality. There's a very interesting anecdote surrounding the first European staging of this work, which took place in Salzburg, Austria, 1964. Staging was financed by a group of neo-Nazis who had misread or misinterpreted the play and who saw in it a legitimization of their racist view of blacks as being racially inferior. Uh, The thought that this Negro king had a notion of the white world as being superior, a notion of European civilization as being superior and so wanted to confer this on his people and who, in order to do so, had to subject them to very hard, feudal-like labor. Moreover, they said to themselves, but, um, you know, but this Negro king is not so strike, is not striking out at the whites in this play, but against his own people. And one can easily see where this strain of thought leads. In other words, if he, Aimé Césaire, is depicting the Negroes in this fashion, then surely they must be an inferior race. And this was, of course, not what Césaire wanted to show in depicting Henri Christophe as a despot, as a tyrant. He wanted to show that the, the mania in which Christophe sank was an unfortunate result of his all-consuming desire to rehumanize his people and elevate them to the level of dignity which they deserved and which had been taken from them by their white masters. And so his obsession with righting the wrongs, with undoing the dehumanization of slavery, caused him to be obsessive. The construction of this great citadel, which can still be seen today, 
entailed forced labor and a, a feudal kind of mistreatment of his people who seemingly had come out of one kind of slavery only to enter into another. But Césaire was clearly not endorsing the, an idea of natives as indolent, culturally inferior, and so on, but was showing that the king paradoxically became evil because of his intense desire to do good, to restore the pride of his people. But what's interesting about this anecdote, which I've spent so much time telling, is that after two days, when it was realized, uh, based on audience reception, that their reading, their understanding of this, was not what was being brought across, the plug was pulled, the financing was cancelled, and the production had to be abandoned. In fact, on the second night, many of these neo-Nazis cried out in horror when they sensed the effect of Césaire's play. But from those early days, the play benefited from the support of influential people. The throne for the king was built by Giacometti, for instance. Césaire was associated with many of the illustrious artists and intellectuals of the time, Giacometti, Picasso, Jean-Paul Sartre, and so on. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote the famous essay, Orphée Noir, the preface to a collection of poetry by Senghor, and in which he praises the writing of Aimé Césaire. And so these intellectuals were later to be instru very instrumental in the staging of the play, uh, the very successful staging of the play in Paris in 1965. His next play is called A Season in the Congo, Une Saison au Congo, and is based again on historical events. It's based on the rise to power and the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, who was the first Prime Minister of the Congo upon its independence in, in 1960. And so Césaire traces the political events that led up to Lumumba's assassination. And in the 1960s, a very politically charged decade, the decade of independence of African countries and of Caribbean countries, this was major stuff. Césaire was actually considered quite controversial in this play. When it was first staged in Paris, it created a lot of outrage from the Congolese expatriates of the time, who had a rather sympathetic view of General Mobutu, whose thinly veiled representation on the, in the play was the character Mukutu. The generally, the generally accepted version of events today, with hindsight, which declassified CIA files as well as the Belgian government have now confirmed of the complicity of the Belgian government in the assassination and to some extent the derailment of democracy in the newly independent Congo, the role of Mobutu, etc., was not accepted knowledge at the time, certainly not among the expatriates. And the portrayal of Mobutu as a traitor caused a lot of outrage and many audience members actually walked out of the theatre. The last play that Césaire wrote was called Une Tempête, A Tempest, mm -hmm. which is a, an, an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Mm -hmm. And it has, most of the characters are the same, but they have the colourings of political figures of the time, and Césaire's Caliban is um, a revolutionary, uh, militant anti-colonial figure, mm -hmm. uh, overtly anti-colonial. Mm -hmm. And one of the famous lines of Shakespeare's play, you taught me language, 
and my profit on it is I know to curse was invested as a major narrative of the anti-colonial movement and the anti-colonial stance and the fact that the dominated peoples having learnt the European language have reappropriated it have taken possession of it on their own terms Mm -hmm. and are now redefining themselves are defining themselves Mm -hmm. on their own terms are speaking about themselves on on, on their own terms and can undo and overwrite all the the, the wrongs that have been, you know, done to them mm-hmm. based on the sole agency of language. Yeah. And so it is an incredibly, incredible um, metaphor for emancipation, uh, for cultural and political yeah. emancipation and black identity. It was very well received at the time. There's still a lot of scholarship on it and it's in many ways considered an ur-narrative of post-colonial studies. In fact, many anthologies of post-colonial studies make reference yeah. to, to uh, A Tempest yeah. because of how important it was. So César is a very a seminal figure for the Absolutely. Caribbean. Yeah. He is an unavoidable, he is, he is a literary giant, and he is incredibly important for the Caribbean. He is incredibly important for the black diaspora, mm-hmm. He has inspired so many writers and and so many political movements in Africa mm-hmm. and even North America and certainly in the Caribbean. Yeah. I do believe that the Carib- the English speaking Caribbean in particular, where I'm from, mm-hmm. uh, does not fully understand, does not fully grasp the importance of Caesar. That's unfortunately is the case because mm. of the linguistic barriers yeah. uh, and the sort of culturally monolithic ways of, of studying literature mm-hmm. in our English-speaking islands. But for those who know his work, and perhaps for those who don't even know his work, he has been an, incredibly, an incredible influence yeah. um, and a towering figure. Absolutely. You've talked uh, very articulately about so many things that are are central to the project of post-colonialism uh, as a theoretical discourse, as uh, a way of reading texts. Of the texts you've talked about, uh, it certainly sounds to me that his position is more... I mean, we all have different ideas about the difference between anti-colonial and post-colonial anyway, but it seems that he's um, going back and recovering histories that don't acknowledge the presence of, of white colonialism or white settler colonialism. He's, he's really... This is, this is not concerned with the effects of colonialism, in a sense he's going back beyond that to recover, like you said, you know, a, a ancient ancient histories yes, and, and cultures, yeah. and which is in itself perhaps more very distinctly anti-colonial in its, you know, yes. in, a, in a very direct rejection of, yes. of that period in history. Yes. We've got to remember that the Caribbean as a region is, is very young, as a people is very young, mm-hmm. and that the Caribbean is constituted of a people who became a people in that region after mm-hmm. being transport, transplanted from a, another yeah, place. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And so they, they had to uh, create their own myths. They, they had to create sort of their own history. Derek Walker, the famous St. Lucian poet, has often spoken and written in a very controversial way about what's been called the Caribbean's burden of history. Mm-hmm. 
Because for Walcott, it's entangled with such claims that the Caribbean has no history, that it has no major achievements and events upon which to build, or that its achievements and events have much to do with slavery, racism, and mm-hmm. um, a history of violent conquest. And so for Walcott, faced with such discourses, it's often better to look at history, Caribbean history, as an ocean that washes away mm. the, the, the past and brings with it new renewal. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps not explicitly, uh, but Césaire has, a similar, has similar concerns uh, when it comes to history because he is in front of a Caribbean that, you know, when the slaves come over, uh, when the slaves come out of, of, of that ship, Mm. Um, after that long journey across the Atlantic, nothing in their worldview, nothing in their cosmogony Mm -hmm. can explain the experience that they're faced with and that they're about to live. Mm. Uh, None of their gods, uh, none of their myths can explain this newness Mm. in which they find themselves. And so they therefore have to create new myths Mm. And they therefore have to create new modalities yeah. with, with which to, to, to face the experience. And so we find that writers of that period are, are concerned with creating and articulating myths uh, which ne- necessarily exist mm. before. That they're invested in that new beginning. Mm. Real in the 1950s and 60s represents a sort of origin um, or, or a return to the origin mm. for Caribbean writing. Walcott began writing in the 1950s. Walcott was already an accomplished poet by the time yeah. he went to study for his undergraduate degree in, in, in Kingston, Jamaica. It, at the time, it was the University College of the West Indies and it was an, uh, a, a branch of the University College of London. And degrees were granted by the University of London. Walcott... Uh, goes to the UCWI in Kingston, Jamaica to study in 1950 for his BA in English Literature, French and Latin. Mm-hmm. And he, he studies at the University College until 1953. He was already a recognized poet. In fact, at the UCWI, Walcott was regarded as a genius by all his peers and by all his teachers. Uh, he has said in interviews that he did not learn much from his teachers um, <laughs> at the UCWI. He was, um, he was, a, he was a visionary, he was he, an, an, incredible, an incredible mind, and everyone recognized that. He chose English, French and Latin because he considered these easy subjects and that he would be able to dedicate his time to his writing, uh, which he did. He also studied linguistics, and he enjoyed that very much. And the detailed analysis of language contributed to his awareness of the structure of poetry. Mm-hmm. His understanding of rhymes, um, of the movement of voice, and so on, were sharpened by the study of linguistics. At Mona, he founded two student papers and directed several plays, including Oedipus Rex and wrote much poetry 
and one of his most famous players, Henri Christophe. Walker's production from that time is voluminous. Um, it was while at Mona that he wrote Ruins of a Great House, which mm-hmm. is still one, still one of his, his most famous poems. After his UWI experience, he was, well, a few years after, he was uh, invited to write a play uh, to commemorate, uh, to celebrate the opening of the first West Indian Parliament, the first Parliament of the West Indian Federation, which um, was very short-lived. This was in 1958, and the work is called Drums and Colors. It's a long epic fresco. Mm composed of several different sections, each of which could be put on as a play uh, in its own right. And he traces uh, the history of the Caribbean as, um, as, as Caribbean islands, as pawns in the, in the hands of European powers. Um, starts with uh, Columbus and, and you know, comes up to the present time. And throughout his career he was regarded and he himself said that he was a West Indian writer. But he is a, a West Indian writer in, in, a, in a way that many others are not. Because Walcott sees the experience of slavery and uh, colonialism as a kind of modernity. Um, an execrated modernity, a negative modernity, but a, a modernity nonetheless. Because different cultures are brought into contact with each other and are forced to relate to each other and create something new on on the one on on a same soil because he himself is a quintessential product of the Caribbean experience his um, grandfather who came from a Barbadian English Barbadian family a, a family of English planters and migrated to St. Lucia in search of a new beginning and married uh, a local St. Lucian woman there, mm-hmm. a black woman yeah. and had five children, the first of whom was Warwick, uh, Derek Walcott's father mm-hmm. and so Walcott is a direct product of, yeah. of Métissage, the Creole experience yeah. of white and black coming together he embraces that, he sees that as, a, as I've said, emblematic of the Caribbean and what the Caribbean is mm-hmm. and and informs a lot of his writing. He is, as many Caribbean people are, and many Caribbean writers, been troubled by that experience. Um, much of his writing is concerned with the paradox of, of, of being black and of being mixed, of being outwardly black, as, at, at least. Yeah. Uh, why, when being cultu- raised culturally white. Mm-hmm. Walcott and his twin brother, Derek and his twin brother Roderick, were born on the 23rd of January 1930. And in light of his uh, ancestry, as I've uh, spoken to you about, he imagined as a child that his grandfather came from Shakespeare's county, uh, <laughs> Warwickshire. His father was called Warwick. Mm-hmm. And that this made him a sort of spiritual heir of the great tradition of English literature. And references made to this in Ormerus his uh, mm-hmm. book-length uh, yeah. epic poem in section 7, uh, which, of course, I invite you to read. Warwick, his father, was bright, and while he worked with the registry department in St. Lucia, was thought of a, as a perfect English gentleman. He was gifted in many arts, including painting, and he was a watercolorist. 
he read Dickens and English classics and had a tremendous love for opera. And he also wrote verse. Uh, and so we see that Walker grew up in an environment uh, that was richly literary and um, sort of bathed in that um, ambience from, from his childhood. So his parents were highly involved in the Methodist church and uh, staged concerts at the Methodist school, uh, including scenes from The Merchant of Venice. His mother was a school teacher as well as a seamstress. Their life was uh, middle class. They um, lived in a, a small, compact, uh, three-story house on the eastern edge of Saint of Castries, the capital of Saint Lucia. Walcott is now most famous for his poetry. Yes, but he is um, also uh, likes as a, a prolific playwright as well. Yes. So the 1967 play Dream on Monkey Mountain is a very sprawling one, but is generally considered to be Nobel laureate Derek Walcott's strongest dramatic work. Uh, it tells the surreal story, and I say surreal because the play is cast in the mode of a dream. Uh, the surreal story of an old charcoal seller called macaque, and macaque is a French and French Creole word for monkey. And that also says a lot, which we could go into, but we won't go into now. The character, the main, the protagonist, macaque, claims to have a, a dream, to have had a dream, pardon, in which he learns that he is the son of African kings, and as such, he should return to Africa. And so filled with the powers of a saviour who can... Uh, redress the wrongs committed by the Western world against Africa and so on. He goes off in search of Africa with his sidekick, Mustique, who is riding off into the moonlight on the back of a donkey with a bamboo lance. And here we have an obvious parody of Don Quixote and his squire, Sancho Panza. And though Walcott uses both mythic and hallucinatory elements in depicting Macacas. Uh, both buffoon and lyric poet, as visionary and lunatic, as both a messiah and a pathetic old man. The play itself traces the transformation uh, of the main characters from schizophrenic men obsessed with a return to Africa and to some mythic prelapsarian past to genuinely Creole Caribbean characters who transcend the cultural binary opposition between Europe and Africa uh, and accept their hybridity, their creoleness, as the product of the melting, the meeting and melding of both African and European cultures, of both Africa and Europe on one Caribbean soil. And this is for Walcott the real Caribbean subject. And this is what Walcott brings that is rather different from Césaire, at any rate, from the way people have read Césaire through the lens of negritude. Walcott brings the complexity of métissage uh, and of diversity, uh, the complexity of unity in diversity, of the trouble of articulating the histories, the different realities, the different values that meet in the Caribbean as a result of the foundational experience of European colonization. 
Walcott is linked in a more apparent way to the concept of creolness, though I think Césaire is also linked to creolness and that one can see this through new and accurate readings of Césaire, but that's another matter for another time. Walcott strives to use a lot of gesture, gesture mm -hmm. and a lot of um, what Artaud would call the poetics of space, mm -hmm. invest that uh, metaphysical um, approach to Caribbean theatre where the language of the stage uh, speaks in its own right, has this um, sensational power that um, articulated uh, verbal language might not have. And so it invests a lot of Caribbean folklore. A lot of his plays invest a lot of Caribbean folklore. But very interestingly, they do so by mixing the Caribbean contributions, the, 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 the sort of autochthonous element, the figure of the storyteller is placed, is juxtaposed uh, to the figure of um, the Greek chorus and so on. And so you have these very disparate um, elements being placed together and he is doing that deliberately uh, to create a generic fusion. In one sense he is trying to elevate the Caribbean forms uh, which have been sort of slighted mm -hmm. to say that the, the, the homegrown forms and our notions of theatricality are as good as the yeah. European ones and are as to be celebrated mm -hmm. as much as the European ones. And so um, there is that a sort of rehabilitation of Caribbean theatrical forms mm -hmm. by bringing in this, the figure of the storyteller, by bringing in figures from uh, the carnival, by creating this festive carnival-like, mm. uh, Caribbean carnival-like uh, feel to the playtext and, and, and to the action, while uh, having characters who speak in verse, uh, in, so in, in, in English verse, um, yeah. there's some verse that's, that's, reminiscent, that's reminiscent of Shakespeare, for instance, mm. and of classical uh, lyrical drama. And so there is that effervescence, mm -hmm. the, the mix of, of, of cultures and yeah. um, anthropologies. In a sense, uh, writing as he did in the 1950s, he was a, a bit before his time. He, mm -hmm. he was onto something which we see a lot in, in, in writing today. There's a sort of notion of, shall I say, relation, as, as Edouard Glissant, Edouard's concept of relation, okay. in which all identity is formed by the contact of, of, of different anthropologies, of different microcultures, mm -hmm. uh, meeting and, and clashing and creating yeah. something new which is a situation that writing finds itself in today where mm. there's no longer a monolithic kind of arrogant language like mm. English or French. Yeah. Uh, these languages which were in the past considered watertight and, yeah, and, yeah. and sort of vertical. So that's the quintessence of what Walcott's yeah. drama is about. I'm very interested in the, the, the poetics of space and the sort of demarcating out a space, a theatrical theatrical space, but also a geographical space, also a space out of which a new identity emerges. I think it's helpful to conceptualise these sort of hybrids, a bit of an ugly word, but I think it's sort of suitable for yes. this, maybe. Isn't uh, it? Or this yes. Creole... Isn't it? It's, mm. it's exactly. It's, he fits into what Chamoiseau, uh, Confiant uh, and Bernard Bay, these Martinican scholars, call okay. the Creoleness. 
there's a very famous manifesto by these three intellectuals in Martinique okay. called In Praise of Creolness, right. which is um, a very important text for um, Caribbean literature and, mm -hmm. and, and just um, Caribbean post-colonial studies. Mm. It belongs to a watershed moment where Caribbean writers come to understand that we are not just uh, the product of Africa. Mind you, when Césaire began writing, uh, and I'm constantly going to refer to Césaire because Césaire is, is he's single, he's, he's in a class by himself. Yeah. When Césaire was writing his, his militant anti-colonial drama and uh, his work that reflects negritude and so on, that was a necessary moment. That was a necessary historical moment because everybody was fighting against colonialism. Mm -hmm. It was necessary to sort of reclaim that 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 um, that cultural that that civilization which had been denied and that humanity which had been denied. Mm -hmm. And so, necessarily, the writers focused on the experience of slavery and therefore the experience of of Africa of coming from mm -hmm. Africa and therefore that mythic return. Mm -hmm to a sort of past before the fall. That was a necessary moment. But then the writers, Césaire's descendants, soon realized that we are not just African. We are the product of a modernity, as I've said before, of a very modern experience, as far as the term modernity goes, in the sense that it, it was the creation of, of something new and as I've said as, as I've intimated something representative of the flow and the dynamics of the world mm. today and so they embraced their creolness the fact that in each in most Caribbean people or perhaps in every Caribbean person there is a part of white there is um, yeah. a part from Africa and um, from Asia mm. and so on you know the, as the Asians came in after yeah emancipation to fill uh, the gap created in the labor force by the mm -hmm. slaves leaving the plantation. Yeah, of course. So the Caribbean is a, is a melting pot and inescapably we are a product of Europe as much as we are a product of Africa. Mm -hmm. And Walcott from his very beginning recognized that. Mm -hmm. And his work is demonstrative of that fact. Yeah. The fact that his ancestry is so um, immediately European, mm -hmm. his grandfather was a white man, yeah. an Englishman, then he embraces that aspect of himself. He is highly schooled in English literature and the classics, and he, um, he does not want to neglect that side of him. You know, He wants to invest that as much as yeah. he wants to invest the African element. Mm -hmm and um, perhaps the other elements of the Caribbean as well.